Um, about 10 years ago, we had a high school pastor that went down to Southern California to start a church. And so we didn't have a high school pastor and we had these volunteers that decided to step up and say, they said, hey, we're gonna do the high school ministry for a while. There was four guys, four gals. And I think it was about 18 months. They just took over and they did it. And I look back on that season and for me, it's one of the highlights of ministry with kids. What they did was amazing. Like each one of them, the gifts, the callings, that group, it's just incredible. Like we have people here, young families that love Jesus, that were a product of those eight volunteers throwing in and really starting a thriving high school group. Just, it's amazing to me. Um, but they were volunteers. And so there's a little rogueness with volunteers, right? They're not employees. So they kind of do their own thing, which is good and bad. And they had this philosophy on camps. So they would take kids to summer camp and winter camp. And they had this philosophy because you get a bunch of high school boys and girls together with hormones, camping, right? And there's some potential there. So this was their philosophy. This was their rule. It was real simple. It was, number one, no lives lost. Number two, no lives gained. <laughs> it was brilliant. I was like, oh, that's really good. <laughs> that's the priority right there. <laughs> it's just amazing. Like hands down, one of the coolest things that happened at Edgewater, those eight people just stepping up and doing what they did, right? So the Bible, the book that you have in your hands has a similar warning to it. So we're gonna start by looking at Revelation 22, end of the Bible, and it says this at the very end of the Bible. Verse 18, Revelation 22. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. What's the warning? No words gained, no words lost, right? No additions and no subtractions. That either one is wrong. Don't add to this book, don't subtract from this book, okay? With that in your mind, go to Mark chapter 16. And if you have a Bible, open it, if you have an app, open it, because I want you to see something that is in probably most of your translations, unless you have the King James Version, right? So in most translations, when you look at verse eight and then look at verse nine, is there a little note right in between those verses? Okay. I read the ESV version, the English Standard Version. It's not a perfect version. 
I like it. It's dependable. It's the version I've chose. Not, you know, I'm not saying it's the only one. It's the one I read. In between verse eight and nine is this little note. I'll read it for you. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16.9 to 20. Do your, does your version have something like that in it? All it's saying is there's a question mark about these and we need to watch not just for subtractions from God's word, we also need to be looking out for additions to God's word, that both of those are wrong. No words gained, no words lost. So today I realize this, it's gonna be thick. I get that. But I want you to be confident in this book that you hold. I want you to be confident that it's right. That we're not missing some parts like the shepherd of Hermas or the gospel of Peter, that we're not missing anything, but also that there hasn't been additions as well. So it's how do we get this book? How do we know it's right? Is there a science to this at all? Or is it just kind of some guys a long time ago made these decisions to control people with it, right? Those are big questions that people will throw at us. I almost didn't cover this because it is thick. But some of you have invested 60 plus messages into Mark, and I felt like I owed it to you to finish the book, right? So it's one more. Today we're looking at this. It will be thick. It's kind of seminary level. But here's what I've tried to do, and I spent a lot of time on this in seminary. I tried to take the cookies off the top shelf and put them down here where we can all enjoy them. So I've tried to bring it as simple as possible. A few of you have been salivating for this message since I started Mark. Like you met me when I started Mark at the back door. You're like, what about chapter 16? Is it there? Is it right? Right? Now, most of us in here don't even know there's 16 chapters in Mark, which is great. I love people like that because I get to mold them in the fashion that I want to. Right? (laughs) Either way, we're going through this. And the question really is, why is there a note between verses eight and verses nine? So to understand this, you gotta have some vocabulary. First is this, an autograph. When you hear the word autographs thrown out about the Bible, it means this, it's the original. When Mark wrote his scroll, most likely a scroll, could have been a codex, which is an old book. When he wrote his scroll, that's the autograph. We do not have a single autograph of the books of the Bible. We have manuscripts. Have you ever heard of the word manuscript? A manuscript is a copy of the autograph, okay? So here's what happened. The reason why we have the New Testament the way we have the New Testament is when the 27 books of the Bible, the autographs were made, people would read them. Matthew and Mark and Luke and Romans and Acts. And then they would be so taken with its authority and its power, they would begin to make copies of it. They're like, this is amazing. It was an ancient version of things going viral. The reason why the shepherd of Hermas didn't go viral, not from God. 
or Gospel of Peter didn't go viral, not from God. But the 27 books of the New Testament, they just went viral. We have 30,000 copies of these books, which is unheard of in the ancient world. So people would make copies, they'd put them in the mail, and then they would send them in the Roman mail system all over the known world, 30,000. Some of them dating within a hundred years of the death of Jesus Christ. Just to give you how crazy cool that is. Have you ever heard of a guy named Plato? Not Plato, Plato, the philosopher, right? He wrote these books, The Republic, those kind of books. The, we have seven manuscripts from Plato. They date 1,200 years after his death. And no one questions the Republic. We have 30,000 copies of this within a hundred years of the death of Jesus, and yet people question it. It's totally unfair, right? This book is out of the world incredible. So when these books went viral, here's what happened. You had professionals that would copy them, and they are perfect looking. The letters are all the same size. The spacing is perfect. Everything is beautiful, right? Very professional copies. But there was no law back then about copying things. There was no copyright. So you also had people that were not professionals. They're also copying the Bible. And you could tell when they copied it. It's like, remember as a kid when you'd be writing something out for a class and you start running out of room at the end of your page? What did you do? You start making your letter smaller and smaller and smaller. And then you kind of turn it on a corner and go down like that. Remember that? There's people that wrote copies of the Bible like that. And you can tell pretty quickly like, ah, this guy maybe was not a professional. I did it all the time. And I would just tell my teachers, I'm saving the planet. I'm not using another piece of paper, saving the planet. You should be proud of me, right? So there are people like that. And when they would copy, sometimes they'd make a mistake. Those mistakes, we would call them typos today. Bible people call them variants. So when someone talks about a variant, it means this. It varies from the norm. So non-professionals copying it, they leave out a word, they add a word, they make a variant. Well, here's what can happen. Let's say that I copied it and I know I have terrible handwriting and I skip things. So I sent it, but man, the gospel of Mark just ministered to me. I've got a cousin that lives in Alexandria down in Egypt. So I make him a copy and I send it but I make a mistake. It's the first copy that ends up in Egypt. He, my cousin reads it. He's like, oh, this is true. He gets saved. He starts making copies. All these copies come out of my copy that was sent to Egypt. And it all has a variant in it. Well, what people do now is they know from the variants what family of manuscripts that they are. Does that make sense? Like, oh, we can track all these came from this one manuscript that was sent to Alexandria and they all belong to that family of manuscripts, right? So I write it one time, goes down to Egypt, but then my copy is copied 500 times, all with the same variant in it. How many errors then are in the Bible from that? Is it one, the original, or is it 501? Okay, so there's a guy named Dr. Bart Ehrman. He is an atheist professor that wants to actually take away your faith. He's not after the truth. 
He actually wants to take away your faith. So he'll say this in debates. He'll say, there are over 400,000 errors in the Bible. More errors than there are words in the Bible. How did he get that number? He's taking my one variant, and he's not saying it's one variant, he's saying it's 501 variants because of the copies, right? So it'd be like this. Atheist, professor, Dr. Bart Ehrman, he wrote a book. It has 16 typos in it. There was 100,000 copies of that book made. According to his logic, he has 1.6 million variants in his book, way more than the 50,000 words in his text, right? You get an F, professor. No one does it that way, but he does. The truth is, the truth is that when you look at the Bible, there are only two big additions that are even debated today. It is number one, Mark chapter 16, where we're at right now. And number two, John chapter eight, the one caught in the very act of adultery. That's it. Neither of them affect any doctrine. Neither of them are something that we derive like important salvation theology from, nothing. And on top of that, there is a science for determining, for checking out what we have right here. It's called textual criticism. Do not mistake it for higher criticism. Who's heard of higher criticism in here? Higher criticism is people that do not believe in God, do not believe in Jesus, do not believe in miracles, don't believe in anything, really. Higher criticism is trying to take away everything that is supernatural. That's higher criticism. Textual criticism is the science by which we find out what the autograph said. That's what it is. It's real simple. And the facts of the Bible are this. It is 99.5% textually pure, which is amazing. Even for a modern document, it's out of this world for an ancient document. And on top of that, we have been given the tools by God to find the remaining 0.5%. That this is absolutely what God wanted us to read. We have it in our hands. Now, here's the problem. Perhaps you've been in a church where a pastor will get up and he'll begin to talk about liberal, God-hating professors that are chopping out parts of the Bible. Have you ever been in a church like that? I've been in them. And what they're saying is your version of the Bible, if it's not King James Version, your version of the Bible is wrong. It's based on revised texts and it's missing parts of the Bible because of God-hating professors who cut it out right? It happens. It happened to me in church. I've told you this before. We were over in Fruitdale. A service was over. I got off. A couple came up to me and they said, hey, we'd love to make an appointment with you. I said, well, what's the deal? What do you got? They said, well, um, would you read a Bible verse for us? I said, sure. So I opened my Bible and I read the verse that they wanted me to read. And they said, what version of the Bible is that? I said, it's the English standard version. They said, well, your Bible is missing something. We read the King James Version and they're about ready to go on their spell. I said, time out, time out. Are you guys King James only people? Yes, we are. I said, I'm not making an appointment with you. They said, why not? I said, because you strain at gnats and you swallow camels and it's ugly. I'm not doing it. Right? And they were all mad at me. I said, here's the deal. You can read the King James Version all you want. 
But the King James Version, as great as it is, it's missing out on the number one most important biblical Bible discovery in history. Happened in 1948 when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's transformed the Old Testament. It's missing out on that. Are you kidding me? It'd be like living life today and not driving a car and not using electricity and not using the internet because Jesus didn't use them. You're not doing that, okay? So I said, no, I'm not meeting with you. And instead of being like, wow, that's interesting. We never thought about that. They they said this, well, you have leaven in your communion. I said, and? Who cares? Are you kidding me? Are you going to do that? You're swallowing gnats and, and eating camels right now. And the lady just looked at me and she said, leaven is sin. I said, no, leaven is yeast. Sin is murdering people. Would you like a demonstration? <laughs> Matt, you're mean. Yep. Yep. I'm not doing it with those people. Right? So There's a idea that somehow textual criticism is satanic and it's trying to destroy the Bible. It is not. It's doing Revelation 22, 18 and 19. No additions, no subtractions. Let's get to the autographs, okay? So I'll try to explain how textual criticism works like this. So I have a daughter, Bella. On Monday, she went back down to Grand Canyon where she's going to school. So what do kids need when they're in college? Money, right? They need money. So I decide, you know what, Bella, before you head back down there, I wanna give you some money. So I'm on my computer and I use Google Voice and I text her this text, but I make some mistakes in it, right? So read this. Right? So there's some mistakes in that, right? So I see in my mistakes, I'm like, oh man, I need to correct that mistake. So I send her another text. And this is the text I sent her the next time. Right, so autocorrect does its things and you can see it's more mistakes. And I'm like, oh man. So I sent her a third text. And the third text, I write this. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Let me ask you. With all those errors, where will Bella be at 1 p.m.? She'll be at Dutch Bros at 1 p.m. What did Bella do with my manuscripts? Textual criticism. That's all it is. It's comparing them and realizing, oh, okay, we can make sense of that. You can do that with three. No problem, get to the truth. We don't have three. We have 30,000 of these manuscripts, right? So it's unbelievable. So people that look at Mark chapter 16, verses six through nine, and they're like, ah! I'm like, don't freak out. There's a science to this. These are people that love Jesus. I've met people that work on these things. They love Jesus, they're dedicated to his kingdom, and they don't want any additions, and they don't want any subtractions, they want both. And my prayer in this is so that you can be equipped when people wanna attack you for the version that you read, to be like, either ignore them or be aggressive like I am. Say, actually, my Bible is right. Your Bible has additions. It needs some chemotherapy. It needs some subtractions. You can be more aggressive if you want, right? Because we just did it right there. It's not rocket science. It does take hard work. It does take dedication because it's not three 
It's 6,000 Greek manuscripts and 24,000 manuscripts in other languages. That's a lot to compare, but they're finding, I am convinced, and I spent a lot of time in seminary on this, I am convinced more now than ever that the book that you hold in your hand is so trustworthy. Well, Matt, what about Mark 16? Okay. So if you know Mark 16, verses six, verses nine down, there's actually not two endings. There's four endings. There's the short ending and the verse eight. There's the long ending down to verse 20. There's the middle ending, just has a couple of verses. And then there's the long ending with a chunk stuck right in the middle of it. There's actually four different endings. Now, people that do textual criticism, when they find a text like that, that has a lot of that, they immediately red flags go up in their head like, hmm, something's happened to this. We need to spend some good time on it. Here's what I'm gonna tell you. I could, I could go with any ending. Wouldn't bother me one bit, right? For simplicity, the two main endings are the short ending, end in verse eight, and the long ending, end in verse 20, right? So I'll put all my cards on the table. Is it the long ending? Is it the short ending? I am 51, 49. Depending on who I've read, what scholar I'm reading, what, it, that just shifts back and forth, right? It's like, hmm, it could be either one, right? No problem. So let me give you why I think, yes, it should be included, and then know why it should not be included. Here's my yes. I love the theology of verses 17 and 18. Listen, I wanna read it for you. I didn't even print it out because I want you to really listen to what it says right here. It's brilliant. And these signs will accompany those who believe in my name, they will cast out demons. Is the New Testament message that you and I have the power over dark forces today? 100%. Greater is he that's within you than he that's in the world. Don't be afraid of the dark anymore. Just turn on the light. I love that. They will speak in new tongues. Do we see that elsewhere in the Bible? Yeah, Acts chapter two. They will pick up serpents with their hands. Do we see that elsewhere? Acts 27. This is a inaugurated eschatology term right here that Isaiah actually talks about it. And he says, the world is gonna be so changed, Isaiah 11, eight, when the king comes that your children will have cobras for pets. They're not gonna hurt you anymore. Like a brilliant kingdom is coming when the king rules rightly. That's what we have to look forward to, right? And then lastly, and if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. The king has come. And because you are kids of the king, man, there's power now. I love that theology. Go out now and preach the gospel without any fear because you're on the king's team. Love the theology. Number two, I think there's evidence for it. So there's this manuscript, it's called the Codex Vaticanus. It's a very trustworthy, very good manuscript. And obviously a pro did it. And right after verse eight, in his manuscript, there's this space, I have a picture of it. That space there is just about the perfect space for guess what? 
verses nine through verse 20. So this guy who wrote this was hyper aware and he does this nowhere else. This one covers the whole New Testament. He leaves space nowhere else. That green line up there starts the gospel according to Luke. In every other spot, he puts it right next to the last verse of the previous book. Only here does he leave space. He knew there is this. I don't know why he doesn't include it, but it's one of those kind of, hmm, better think about that. Number two evidence is this. So I have a picture of there's 64 witnesses that are ancient that talk about these verses. Someone took the time to kind of uh, arrange them. Here's the picture of it. Is, and I have a paper on this. You're welcome to ask for it. Email Rachel. She'll send it to you. I'll guarantee you it will cure insomnia, right? So I just try to give you the, the quick. So the, the dates up there, it's 180 to 450 AD. The numbers are the witnesses we have. They could be fathers quoting it. They can be extra extra biblical stuff talking about it. Um, it can be the black ones are actually manuscripts. And the ones on top are prolong ending. The ones on bottom are no long ending. The overwhelming ancient evidence, what does it lean toward? The longer end, ending, right? The gray in the middle means that it's, it's ambiguous, right? So you have a lot of quotations from people that are preaching messages going back to 100 AD. So it's, if it is a copy, and I'm not sure, it's a very, very, very old copy, okay? So that's the pro side. So what happened? I don't know, maybe the scroll got ripped at the end. It was a codex, the ancient book form, which I do not think it was, maybe the last age fell off. I don't know, something happened and we lost it. So that's the pro. Here's the no, I don't think it should be included. And it's much clearer in the Greek, but there is a change in style in verses nine through 20. I don't want to get into the weeds of the Greek, but let me read you one verse. And I want you to think about this verse and listen to its words. It's verse 14. Listen. Afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Does that sound like the Jesus of Mark that we've been studying? Does Jesus speak to the 11 that group, this way after the resurrection. Well, let's look at how he speaks to them, right? We have those accounts. We have John 20, verse 27. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, the doubting Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Or John 21, to the denying Peter. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
And he said to him, feed my lambs. And then Luke chapter 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And let me read verse 14 one more time. Afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Remember in kindergarten, you were given four pictures and you had to circle the one that did not belong? When you read those four accounts, which one doesn't belong? For me, it's Mark 14. Mark 16, verse 14. Something's changed there. The gracefulness that Jesus deals with his disciples after the resurrection, it's gone. And I think that happens anytime you and I begin to add to the message of Jesus. Whenever we do, we make him something else. Read Galatians 1. You've added something, and because you've added it, everything has changed. You've gone backwards. You've lost his grace. You've come up with bumper sticker theology. Jesus is coming back, and boy, is he ticked, right? That's what you start coming up with. And I think it happened very quickly. And I see it in churches. And I see it with pastors. I see it over and over again that when we start to move away and start adding things to Jesus, what happens is, is he loses his grace and God becomes angry and wrathful at us. Matt, you went wake surfing on Saturday instead of witnessing? Hell for you, you miserable failure. Right? Have you ever heard that voice? God becomes wrathful. It's all about laws and duty. There's no grace. We forget about what the cross did. And the moment that happens in a believer, it drives you to exhaustion. You can never do enough for him. You become judgmental. You get on this treadmill of works and you just try to, ah. And the Bible, instead of being a book of joy, becomes a job. Instead of, ah, I want to learn and know my heavenly father, it's if I don't do it, he's going to kill me. So I better read this morning. Ever felt that way? It happens really quick. We change the message. It happened, I think, within the first hundred years. They added. Nowhere else did the gospel say something like that about him. Do you know that Jesus came for failures, for deniers, for doubters, right? Do you know that? Let me read for you what Paul says about his conversion. Listen to this. It's 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Paul's way of saying, pay attention to this. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save 
sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, the foremost what? Sinner, failure, doubter, denier. Jesus Christ might display his patient, perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is one of the most incredible texts. When Paul reflects back about who he was, such a failure, such a sinner, such a miserable wretch, and remembers the grace and mercy and patience of Jesus, he immediately breaks into song. Praise just flows from him, right? Because that's what happens to us. When we are caught up in the glory and majesty and goodness and grace of God, what flows from us is not duty and gritted teeth. Oh, it's praise. Are you kidding me? How can you be so good? Do you know that God is after your joy? Not grudging submission. He's after your joy. Let me just read you some verses. Psalm 4 verse 7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. What the psalmist just say right there? You've given me more joy than the dude that's having a fat party with all kinds of food and all kinds of wine. More joy than that. Psalm 1611, you guys know this one well. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 21.6. For you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Psalm 36, verse 8. They feast on abundance of your house and you give them drink from the rivers of your delight. I can go on and on and on. Jesus, I've come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. Romans chapter two, verse four. It is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance, to change, to transformation. First Timothy six seventeen. He has given you all things to enjoy. What are all things? All things, right? It's the good heavenly father that creates a garden of delight and says, enjoy it all, Adam and Eve. Just stay away from that tree, it's really bad. Right, it's the same God. And yet we lose his mercy and his grace and his goodness so quickly. That's why one of my jobs, one of my priorities at Edgewater is to constantly be telling you something about God. That God is good and he is generous. That when you are a son, a daughter of King Jesus, you get the father that you've always needed and always wanted. That's what you get, right? That's what I tell all the time. And then when that happens to you, here's what happens to God's word. It's not a job, it's not a duty, it's a delight. I wanna find out about my father. 
I want to know this graceful, kind one. Every word matters, right? Have you ever had that happen to you where something just every word matters for you because of delight and love? Did for me. I was dating my wife. She was just my girlfriend then. We'd only dated a short time. And then I was down in Mexico working at an orphanage with handicapped kids. I was down there for almost four months, three and a half months. And so we started writing letters back and forth. There was no internet. There's no phones. There was none of that, right? So we're writing letters back and forth. I have never studied words more than I studied the words of her letters, right? You're trying to piece together, right? Because I knew this. I was head over heels for her. I had outputted my coverage. And I was just trying to reel her in, like get her in the, get her in the boat as quick as possible, right? Should I do that? So I'm trying to figure out how I write back to her. And every time I'd come to the end of my letter, it was the biggest debate in history. How do I sign this letter? Is it sincerely Matthew Heverly? Right? Is it casual love or love ya? Kind of casual? Or do I go where she has not gone yet? And do I write, I love you, Matthew, right? Because if I don't sign it that way, if I do sign it that way, I'm really like exposing myself. Does she feel that way towards me? You guys remember those moments? But if I don't sign it that way, I'm leaving the door open for some other filthy animal to date her. (laughs) It was love that drove that debate, right? Words matter study. Man, when you find out how good and how generous God is toward you, it changes everything. It changes the voice you actually listen to because there's always two voices when you fail. There's a voice of God's spirit that says, run to him. You need the father right now. And there's a voice of the serpent that says, run away from him and hide behind a tree because he is mad at you and he's going to pound you. Depending on how you view Jesus, that will determine the voice that you listen to. One will drive you away from your father. One will drive you to your father. One will drive you away from Jesus. One will drive you to the one that says, I give everything for the people that I love. No greater love has a man for his friend than he laid down his life. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The one that knows me the best, loved me the most when I was at my worst. It all depends on how you see Jesus. And within, I think, a hundred years, there was already this group of people that were starting to move Jesus away from his goodness and his generosity. And my goal is always to drive us back. Jesus is better than you could imagine. Jesus is more gracious than you could ever ever comprehend. Let him be that for you. Let that saturate your soul. It's why every Sunday we come to the table. It's a reminder that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. That's the good news. That's the Jesus of Mark chapter 16. So Father, today, every one of us wants to give you thanks for your unspeakable gift. 
May we grow large enough as your believers, as your followers, to accept the unworldly, expansive ocean of your grace and mercy, that even this morning, your mercies are brand new. Great is your faithfulness. May we be a people that delight in that, that feed on that, and may it be your goodness that brings about transformation and repentance. Let's eat today of his goodness. And we hold the cup. The cup of our purchase, the cup of our redemption, the cup of our cleansing, the cup of our healing, the cup of the inaugurated kingdom that it's here. Would you give us eyes to see it today? May we drink of the antidote of our culture, of the elixir of heaven today. Let's drink together. Amen. So we'll sing one more song. After that song, you can be dismissed. Tune in to 96.5. But if you want, there'll be some people up here that are here every Sunday and they want to pray for you. Nothing too big, nothing too small. We offer baptism. Everett right over here in his coat of many colors. If you're thinking today is your day, talk to Everett. He'll explain what it means, what we believe baptism means for the believer. How the old things are passed away. How visibly, tangibly, your cleanness and your acceptability to the Heavenly Father is made evident and something deep is planted in your heart. If today is your day for that, man, we'd love to join with you. Come talk to Everett. Would you stand for this final song?